You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living, Reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. On this week's broadcast, we will share a few of those reflections with you. And so we'd encourage you to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to another edition of Your Life is Worth Living. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me for this Lenten season as we share the wit and wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Last week, we shared with you from the Catholic Hour recordings back from 1944, and uh, we're going to share a few more of those programs with you today. Uh, Bishop Sheen, of course, spoke on the seven last words Uh, of our Lord from the cross and uh, gave many beautiful reflections over the years. And so these three reflections today will be on the fourth, fifth, and sixth words our Lord spoke from the cross. And he'll speak to a different group of people with each one of those words. And so he'll be speaking to the intelligentsia today. He'll also be speaking to the moderns and to the sensationalists. So he may even be talking to one of us, <laughs> but, you know, because I think sometimes we are guilty of being the moderns or maybe the sensationalists, but uh, you'll see as Bishop Sheen explains uh, these type of people that uh, they are with us today. Uh, they were with a, with the Lord, of course, 2,000 years ago at the foot of the cross challenging him, but uh, they're still with us today. And so let us begin with prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please enjoy now this reflection from the Right Reverend Fulton J. Sheen from 1944, The Catholic Hour, entitled A Word to the Intelligentsia. Enjoy. Friends, every age has its intelligentsia. And by the intelligentsia, we here mean not the educated, but those who have been educated beyond their intelligence. A sponge can hold so much water. A person can hold so much education. When the point of saturation is reached in either, the sponge becomes a drip 
and the person a bore. All the intelligentsia are proud because of the alleged superiority which their learning gives them. Their judgment of others is based on what they know rather than on conscience. Religion they judge by their own standards. And whenever they write on the subject of religion, they always entitle their articles, My Idea of Religion. They never inquire about God's idea of religion. Today they judge religion by whether or not it corresponds to their views on politics. In the face of real learning, they talk comparative religion. In the face of simple faith, they mock and sneer. To them, the hallmark of culture is to be irreligious. They once doubted the existence of God, but nothing else. Now they doubt even their own doubts. What impact does the cross make upon them? One needs only go to their intellectual progenitors to study their reaction. The fourth word addressed to the cross of our Lord came from the intelligentsia of his time, the chief priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees. And looking up to the cross, they addressed the fourth word to it. They said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save if he be the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him, if he will have him, for he said, I am the son of God. The intelligentsia always know enough about religion to distort it. Hence they took each of the three titles which our Lord had claimed for himself, Savior, King of Israel, and Son of God, and they turned them into ridicule. First, Savior. Now they could admit that he had saved others, probably the daughter of Jairus, the son of the widow of Naim and Lazarus. They could afford to admit it now, for the Savior himself stood in need of salvation. He saved others, they said, himself he cannot save. To them the conclusive miracle was still lacking. The poor fools. Of course he cannot save himself. The rain cannot save itself if it is to bud the greenery. The sun cannot save itself if it is to light a world. And the soldier cannot save himself if he is to save his country. And Christ cannot save himself if he is to save all men. King of Israel, they said. That title the crowd gave him after he fed the multitude and fled into the mountains alone. They repeated it again on Palm Sunday when they strewed branches beneath his feet. And now that title they mocked as they sneered, If he be the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross. Must all the kings of earth be seated on golden thrones? Maybe here was a king who decided to rule from a cross. 
to be king not of bodies through power, but of hearts through love. Their own literature was full of the idea of a king who would come to glory through humiliation. How foolish then to mock a king because he refuses to come down from his throne. And if he did come down, they would be the first to say, as they had said before, he did it through the power of Beelzebub. Son of God. He trusted in God, they said. Let God deliver him if he will have him, for he said, I am the Son of God. Irreligious forces have their holidays in moments of great catastrophes. In wartime they ask, where is thy God now? Why is it that in time of trouble it is always God that is put on trial and not man? Why in this war should judge and culprit change places as man asks, why does God not stop the war? And to all the good on earth who have been mocked because of their faith in God, I say, you are not without an example. That sneer that you receive in your office because out of love for this Good Friday passion of your Lord, you abstain from meat on Friday. The turned-up lips and the barbed laughter you suffer because of your loyalty to the church. The ridicule of your fellow soldiers as you kneel at your cot in the barracks and pray. All these are but echoes of the taunts your Lord received on Calvary. But he did not come down from his cross. He said, be glad and rejoice, for your reward is very great in heaven. But why does not he who is the morning star put out the darkness of this hour? Because this is the moment when he wills to make atonement for the sins of men. The essence of sin is twofold. It involves a turning from God and eterning two creatures. So he who is without sin now wills to feel these two effects of sin. Because sin involves turning to creatures, he suffers at the hands of men. Because sin involves a turning from God, he permits himself to feel divine abandonment as in the midst of the rasping mockery, he cries with a loud voice, My God, my God, why? Why hast thou abandoned me? This was his answer to the intelligentsia. He was talking about sin, not knowledge. Sin is a separation from God. Sin is supreme loneliness. Sin separates man from God and man from man. And this disruptive power of sin, which is permanent in hell, our Lord now allows to devastate his inmost soul 
that he might suffer what we deserve for our sins. That fellowship between God and man which was broken by sin, he now feels as his own. For his cry reveals that the essence of sin is not a mission. It is a dismissal. That is what sin deserves. Mockery from men. Rejection by God. Such is the worm and the fire of hell. Creatures run out of love when they are mocked and betrayed. They touch bottom and they say, I wash my hands of you. But love refuses to leave the sinner even in sin. We have no expression for the opposite of washing our hands of a person except the words of Isaiah's. The Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. To bear sin meant to go on loving even in the midst of a crucifixion. I can go on sinning despite that love, for I am free. But when I see our Lord still loving me when I crucify him, and when I see him still praying to God for me even when I abandon him, and never losing faith in me, though I lose faith in him, by that very fact I am made penitent. For how can I go on sinning in face of love like this? I may not be at the end of my journey, but I am at the end of my rebellion. A child sins seriously. The mother suffers because of that sin. And the suffering varies in direct relationship to her love and the gravity of the sin. Because the son loves the child, and the mother loves the child, rather she cannot let that child suffer the effects of sin alone. She enters into it. She shares it. If the child sees the mother suffering, the child will be drawn to penitence. Then the mother can forgive. And our Lord so loves us that he took our sins upon himself as if he were guilty and draws us freely to repentance by the price he paid to save us. Hence forgiveness is no glib thing. The cross was the supreme expression of the righteousness of God if the redemption of man were done without cost, it would insult us. For no man with a sense of justice wants to be let off. It would insult God. For the whole moral order founded on justice would be impugned. The cross is the eternal proof that no sin is forgiven through indifference. God safeguards his justice even at the very moment that he forgives. All ye like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has turned his own way. And he who knew no sin, he hath made sin for us, that we might be made the justice of God in him. And I wonder in the light of that word from the cross, if the modern hatred of religion is not to a great extent determined by the way men live. 
Do not men delude themselves by making the creed fit the way they live rather than making the way they live fit the creed? Is not the modern mockery of religion but the vain attempt to ignore it? Why is it that the intelligentsia are more interested in destroying faith in others than in giving others their own incertitude? The intelligentsia have told others that to believe in God is foolishness. But what wisdom do they give as a substitute? Why is it they never think of making anyone better? but only wiser according to their own judgment. A few years ago, I instructed a young man in one of the large colleges of the East, a college, incidentally, that was founded to teach religion. His classmates used to ridicule him by buying rosaries and swinging them before his eyes as they passed him on the campus. Why do the intelligentsia mock? In the face of facts like this, one really asks himself if learning brings understanding. Hence a few special words of pleading to the intelligentsia. When in the darkness of your soul you feel disquieted and your conscience haunts you, Think not that that is due to any psychological explosions from an unconscious or subconscious mind. It is the call of God. As you lie awake at night and ponder over your sins, for darkness brings out one's own darkness, as you mourn the loss of relatives and friends and ponder on the problem of death, as you feel stirred by the purity, sacrifice, and faith of others, even when you ridicule, as you try to throw off a thousand qualms of conscience a day, ask yourself what these promptings really are. They are actual graces, divine solicitations, beckoning calls of the shepherd to lost sheep. Do not frustrate them then by introducing speculative questions as did the woman of the well. For the root of your discontent is in your morals, not in your minds. If some of you have been away from the sacraments for 20 years or more, stop justifying your rebellion against God by false reasons saying that you no longer believe in confession? Yes, you do. Your quasi-intellectual opposition is a camouflage for your moral cowardice. You are afraid to face your sins. So you attack the church. Get down on your knees. Humble yourself before God. Make a holy hour every day, every Jew and Protestant and Catholic, and spend it, Catholics particularly. In the morning of Mass, prolong it for a half hour. Send for this little booklet on friends. Teach you how to be friends with yourself and with 
with neighbor and with God. God knows your loneliness. He felt it on the cross. He knows your needs. He bought them on Calvary. Love has not passed you by. It is only the bowl of human affection that you drank dry, not the chalice of salvation. And a humble and contrite heart, the Savior will never reject. And may you then pray in the language of the ancient prayer, Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console. To be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardon that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. God love you. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to another edition of Your Life is Worth Living. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me for a few Lenten reflections through the uh, technology that we have available to us to listen to some of these classic recordings from the 1940s, the Catholic Hour. Uh, Bishop Sheen will now give a reflection uh, entitled The Word to the Moderns, and of course at the time he was the Right Reverend Monsignor Sheen, so I ask you to sit back and relax and enjoy this reflection entitled a word to the moderns. Take care. Friends, the modern world is full of moderns. And by the moderns, we here understand those who believe in what they call moderation. They hate excesses, either of good or of evil. Compromise is the very essence of life. They have an open mind, so very open it can close on nothing. They are what the scriptures call lukewarm, but they prefer to call themselves broad. The moderns are good people by the standards of the world. They have their daughter married in a church where she was never baptized. They like Easter Sunday services particularly the fashion parade which follows. In discussion, they feel that a pretty good case can be made out for the existence of some power behind the universe. They read about seven books a year, all novels, chosen either because they were widely advertised or because their neighbors read them. They serve on hospital boards, parent-teachers associations, contribute to birth control clinics and Russian relief, but always within the 12% allowed by the income tax. They send their children to the best schools they can afford. They never send them to church, but they let them go to the movies twice a week. They take their politics from a radio commentator. 
and their economics from a son who had just had a year of it under a Marxist professor in college. They think there are too many divorces, but after all, we're not living in the Middle Ages. They believe the majority is always right, that religion probably does add some sentiment and symbolism to life. They are what their neighbors call good people. Their words are correct, their manners courteous, they shrink from giving pain to others, they discountenance great crime, cursing and swearing to them are vulgar. They are our good moderns. What is the reaction of the moderns to the cross? Well, in order to understand how they would react, we need only go back to their ancestors who addressed the fifth word to the cross. The gospel calls them bystanders. These original moderns, too, love their puns and their humor at the expense of religion. And the occasion for it was the fourth word of our Lord from the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou abandoned me? It was spoken in Hebrew. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. The bystanders knew very well what those words meant. But to those who will to mock, it was a fine opportunity for a pun, pretending that they understood him to say Elias rather than God. They said, This man calleth Elias. Let us see whether Elias will come to deliver him. It was a typical attitude of many who think religion means something else than it actually does. Mistaking Elias for religion, religion for social service, contemplation for dreaming, mortification for morbidity, confession for psychoanalysis, and the papacy for politics. The dilettantes and the moderns always think we are calling on Elias when we are actually calling on God. Their very words indicated passivity, indifference, and false caution. For they said, let us see whether Elias will come to deliver him. Wait. Take your time. Do not do anything rash. Wait and see what the church does about Marxism. Maybe it will change its marriage laws. Do not be in a hurry to give your soul to God. Wait and see. They are always waiting for bargains in religion, but there are none. So our Lord answered them, not directly, but indirectly. To the bystanders and the overcautious moderns, he gave the key to salvation the need of fire for a cause that is as burning as thirst. For almost three hours now, he had remained bareheaded except for a crown of thorns under that burning, blinding sun, while from four fountains there poured out life in the form of blood. It was therefore natural for him to ask for a drink. He the God-man, he who shut up the sea with doors, when it did burst forth as issuing out of a womb. 
He who threw stars in their orbits and spheres into space. He who once stood up in the temple on the last day of a solemn feast and cried out in a loud voice, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. Now he speaks, not to God, not to the executioners, not to his mother, but to man. And out from the depths of his sacred heart there wells the cry, I thirst. While the bystanders were like ice, he was on fire. While they coursed in shallow streams, he launched out into the deep. While they stand by and wait, he plunges in that one cry through both fire and water. While the moderns are saying, let us wait and see, our Lord answers, no. Be a thirst. Be a fire. I am come to cast fire on earth. And what will I but that it be enkindled? Religion, in other words, is not for calculating love. One must love life like wine and drink death like water. Religion is love, and love is fire. And that was why he chose persons of fire. He always chose them for his disciples, sons of thunder, for example, like James and John, who would have called down from lightning from heaven to the Samaritans, but whose zeal, once rightly directed, truly thundered through a world. He chose a hot-blooded, fiery, impetuous Peter, swinging a sword recklessly at night, and yet one who, out of love for the Master, breathed his last upon a cross upside down, thinking it unbecoming to die like the Lord. He chose Magdalene, passionate, sensuous, and wild, the kind of a woman who gave her body without ever giving away her soul, and yet the one who, under the touch of Christ's fiery hand, gave her body in penance to save souls in grace. There is no place for spineless characters in religion. There is more possibility for conversion in passion wrongly directed than in indifference. More in those who thirst than those who are filled. Where there is fire, that direction can always be changed by God's grace so that it will burn upward rather than downward and thus enkindle goodness rather than vice. But where there is indifference, false tolerance, spineless broad-mindedness that espouses all causes and yet really accepts none, when there's that kind of mentality, there is no chance for salvation. There are many potential saints in prison and many potential devils in the service of God. In both cases, there is a thirst, a thirst for Satan and a thirst for God. And neither thirst could be reversed. Lenin, for example, was a St. Francis in reverse. And St. Francis was Lenin in reverse. Both started with the idea of violence. Lenin believed in violence to others. St. Francis believed in violence to himself. 
they both had the same starting point. Violence. As our Lord had said, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent shall bear it away. It was the direction of that violence that made the difference between St. Francis and Lenin. Hate and love spring from the same passion as laughter and sorrow drink from the same fountain of tears. The difference is in the motive and the end for which they live. Religion is something that either must be hated or loved. It cannot be watched as the moderns do it. There are too many people in this world who get credit for being good when they're just passive. They're often praised for being broad-minded when they're so broad-minded they could never make up their minds about anything. They're like icebergs that float around the cold streams of the north. They deserve no credit for being icebergs. They cannot help it. But let those icebergs get down among the warm gulf streams of the south and remain icebergs. They have character. And those are the souls for which God thirsts. And so to you moderns, who have no great enthusiasms, I say, it is not what you know that is true which keeps you from salvation. It is what you know that is false. You moderns will never be convinced of religion by argument, for the chances are you have already have had sufficient knowledge. What you need is good will. You are skeptics. And the best cure for skeptic poisoning is love. Develop a little fire, a little enthusiasm. God is no use for tepid souls. Love your neighbor with an unselfish, dedicated, passionate love, and you will find your God. And that is why this year we chose to give away on the air this little booklet called Friends. In order in the midst of bigotry and anti-Semitism and anti-Christianity to inspire a thirst for God and love of neighbor. If you write for this little booklet, we will send it to you free. And I beg you moderns, therefore, visit the sick in hospitals, the poor and the slums. Give them some of your possessions and listen to these people. Notice the different attitudes of those who have faith and those who have it not. How peaceful are in suffering those who have faith and how rebellious the others are. Have you ever noticed that? And slowly you will come to see that if God can make that much difference in their suffering lives, what a great difference he could make in your own. Suffer deeply in sympathy with others. Love them in an unselfish way, and you will learn more than you ever learn from books. Elias will never come to you, but Christ will come in suffering and in need. It is he who is asking for it. For I was hungry, and you gave me to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. Sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me.
That word of our Lord from the cross reveals the secret of your unhappiness. It is your lukewarmness. You moderns have no great loves. You are not on fire. You never thirst. Even we who have the faith know the Savior and his cross as well have been infected sometimes by this passivity of yours. We too are lukewarm. The cohorts of Satan today have unfortunately more passion for the spreading of evil than the children of God have for the spreading of truth. As Prometheus stole the fire from heaven, so the Pentecostal fires have been stolen from our altar and now are blazing in the temples of anti-God. That is why we ask for fire in the shape of a holy hour from every Jew and every Protestant and every Catholic in this radio audience. Every day, set aside an hour. And Catholics attend Mass every morning and spend an extra half hour to complete that hour. This war will stop through our prayers. This is the real balance of power. The prayer and trust of men and God. All of us are moderns in a certain sense. We do not love as we ought. God is a consuming fire and we are puny embers. Christ came to cast fire on earth and we throw up a smoke screen. We are all waiting for Elias to take him down. Why do we not do it and do it now? We go up to Calvary, but we come down uncrucified. And woe, I say woe unto us that come down from Calvary with hands unscarred and white. From the cross the Savior cries, I thirst and we. We reach him vinegar and gall. If that cross means anything, it means that our human goodness is not good enough. And well may the Savior say to us, You call me master, and obey me not. You call me light, and seek me not. You call me way and walk not. You call me life and desire me not. You call me wise and follow me not. You call me fair and love me not. You call me rich and ask me not. You call me eternal and seek me not. You call me gracious and trust me not. You call me noble and serve me not. You call me mighty and honor me not. You call me just and feed me not. If I condemn thee, blame me not. God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to another edition of Your Life is Worth Living. 
I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me for this Lenten series of talks given by the Venerable Archbishop Sheen back when he was Monsignor Sheen in 1944. Let us now join him for his third reflection today, entitled A Word to Sensationalist. Please enjoy. Friends, one of the most interesting of all irreligious groups is that of the sensationalists. By the sensationalists, we mean those for whom religion must always be dramatic, or those who judge religion by their feelings rather than by their mind and by their wills. Religion to them is a tintillation rather than a sanctification, a feeling good rather than a being good, a startling overtone rather than a quiet, subdued minor. They accuse the church of doing nothing because it is not doing anything sensational, just as they might say there's nothing in the papers today because there was no train wreck and no riot and no murder mystery. If, for example, I announced that next Sunday I would broadcast standing on my head in order to symbolize that the world was topsy-turvy, and if in that ecstasy of modernity I called my posture the iambic-dithrambic posture, I would have most of the newspaper photographers of New York in the studio next Sunday. Headlines would appear in the papers. Remarkable new symbolism. Father Sheen stands on his head. My radio audience would pick up a thousand percent. But if I announced that next Friday night, good Friday night, I would talk to you on the passion of our blessed Lord, as I shall do, few would listen. There is nothing so calculated to win modern minds to religion as playing the fool, catering to the gallery, and making salvation dramatic. And these sensationalists of our day had their representatives at the cross in the person of the Roman soldiers. St. Luke writes of them, And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. These men were not Jews. They were not citizens of conquered Israel. These soldiers were proud legionnaires of Rome's screaming eagles. Why then did they mockingly refer to him on the cross as the king of the Jews? Because in keeping with the spirit of paganism, they thought all gods were national gods. Babylon had its god, the Medes and the Persians had theirs, the Greeks had theirs, and so did the Romans. And the implication was that of all the national gods, none seemed poorer and weaker than the God of Israel who could not save himself from a tree. But there was something more significant still in their mockery. These men were sensationalists. Hence they expected religion to be very dramatic, just as dramatic as unloosening fetters and turning a cross into a throne. In their eyes, God could justify himself only by doing a stunt, by pandering to their love of excitement. 
They wanted a life of Christ like Hollywood might do it, with love scenes between Judas and Magdalene. And that is why they asked him to step down from the cross. They wanted an incident which would make them say, oh, when their eyes saw it, rather than one which would make them say, I believe, when their minds under the grace of God knew it. And all through the ages there have been groups like those sensationalists who despise the unobtrusive in religion. In the Old Testament, for example, Naaman came to Elias, the prophet, to be cured of leprosy. He expected a dramatic cure, but the man of God told him to go and wash in the Jordan. And in disgust at such a simple, commonplace suggestion, Naaman turned away and left him in rage. Satan, too, believes in the dramatic. One of the temptations on the mount was to suggest that our Lord throw himself down from the pinnacle. Now the sensationalists at the cross, with their jaded appetites and their sadistic impulses, make the same appeal. Come down from the cross with rosebuds in place of scars, garlands in place of a crown of thorns, and with power instead of sacrifice. That is what they wanted. And just suppose he had come down from that cross unscarred. Would these sensationalists have believed? They probably would have summoned a learned professor from Athens to prove that it was all an illusion. And while these soldiers were asking for something as dramatic as the king of the Jews unloosening his manacles of steel... Our blessed Lord answered them in a very simple word. A word which meant, the drama is already over. And the word that he spoke was a very quiet word of triumph. It is finished. And to those soldiers it must have been just as preposterous as if you came into a theater about 8.30 one evening... And while you asked, when is the curtain going up, someone on the stage answered, I'm very sorry, the play is over. The curtain is already rung down. You have missed the show. It is finished. And sensationalists miss divinity for just that reason. The real, true religion is always unspectacular. The foolish virgins go to buy oil for their lamps, and when they come back, they find that the bridegroom has already returned, and the door was closed. It was so undramatic. A beautiful maiden knocks at the door of an inn, and an innkeeper says to her that there is no room. Into a stable she goes, and there a child is born. It was God's entrance into the world. But it was so undramatic. A collector of taxes is seated at a table counting money. And a passerby calls to him and says, Come, follow me. And Matthew became an apostle. It was so undramatic. Three common criminals, at least criminals in the eyes of the Roman law, carry their crosses up a hill. 
One of them our Lord forgives and receives into paradise. It was so undramatic. Revealed that our Lord was in very truth the Son of God. For as the eternal word, he was now making a report to his heavenly Father that the redemption of man was now finished and the time was ripe for sending his Holy Spirit into the souls of men to make them children of God. What was so wonderfully created could now be more marvelously regenerated. In the beginning of the world, God saw that it was good and rejoiced. And now the Son sees that it is better and breaks out into a poem of joy. It is perfect. Where sin abounded, grace does more abound. Through all eternity, the Father says to his Son, Thou art my Son. This day have I begotten thee. And now the Son says to the Father, Thou art my Father. This day have I finished it. From now on, he can await the Father's rending of the grave on Easter morn in the final proclamation that it was not he who died. It was sin. This word of our Lord's was not the sigh of a sufferer finding relief. It was the word of a divine artist finishing the work his father had given him to do and finishing it at a very early age, about the age of 33. And thus the perfecting of creation by redemption and the restoration to fallen men of the dignity of divine adoption was rendered all the more undramatic because our Lord did not finish his life with an autobiography. Rather, his autobiography was a biography. He did not say, I finished it, but rather, it is finished. He is not the subject of the greatest work which was ever wrought on this poor, sinful earth of ours. The servant of Yahweh did not name himself, but rather speaks of the whole program which God wrought through him. Nor is he saying, Thank God that I have not been unsuccessful, or I will be remembered. The it rather than the I closes an autobiography of the Son as if it were a biography written by the Father and the Holy Spirit. Our Lord could not endure the thought of a book entitled My Three Years in Israel. He therefore is not one of the world's great men. We often say that our Lord was a great man. If he were just that, he would not be all that he is. Good and great men never lie. And our Lord said that he was the Son of God. Therefore, he was either the Son of God or he was not a great man. Great men in the worldly sense of the term are always dramatic. 
as if their works needed some justification, they ring down the curtain of their life with a great I am. They always reveal themselves, but this man on the cross concealed himself, even in death. And a special word, therefore, to all you sensationalists. Salvation is not sensational. Faith is not emotional. The redemption is not dramatic. You can sit in the very shadow of the cross, as did the soldiers, and still miss its meaning. You can justify your refusal to come to God because of scandal, so did the soldiers. For it was an awful scandal that Christ, the Son of God, should swing impotent from a peg. But God comes to you sensationless in the zephyrs, not in the thunders. Therefore, look for him in the commonplace. For he is not far from every one of us. In him we live and move and are. As Francis Thompson said, turn but a stone and start a wing. His voice, did we know it, beats at our own clay-shuttered doors. Do you ever remember an evening when the deadening sounds of the world faded away and you found yourself gazing down a new avenue of spiritual yearning? Do you know what that was? That was the voice of God. That was an actual grace. Did you ever feel remorse? A sense of emptiness? A disgust with excesses? Or a wish for inner peace? That was the voice of God. And those of you who may have given up the church for sensationalism may feel during this week an urge to return and to go to confession. That is an actual grace. That is the voice of God. And those of you who have received this little book which we are giving away free, a book called Friends, which we will send to anyone who asks for it, Jew, Protestant, or Catholic, to you who have read it and felt impelled to be more kind to your neighbor and to your enemy, know you not that it was not the book that so inspired you. It was the voice of God. It was an actual grace. Make this experiment. I care not whether you believe in God or not for the moment, but at your first opportunity, stop in a Catholic church for a visit. Now, if you are not Catholics, and therefore, if you do not believe as we do, that our Lord is really and truly present in the Blessed Sacrament. Just go there and sit down for an hour. Make your hour that way, that hour that we ask for every week. And within that hour, 
you will experience the surpassing peace the like of which you've never before enjoyed in your life. And you probably will ask yourself, as a sensationalist once asked me when I took him up to the Basilica of the Sacre Coeur in Paris, where we spent the whole night in adoration of our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament with about 1,500 other men. What is it, he said, that is in that church? Without voice or argument or thundering demands, you will have an awareness of something before which your whole spirit trembles, a sense of the divine. God walks into your souls with silent step. He comes to us more than we go to him. Every time a channel is made for him, he pours into it his fresh gift of grace, and it is all done so undramatically in prayer, in the sacraments, before the altar, in loving service of fellow men. Never will his coming be just what you will expect, and yet it never will disappoint. The more we respond to his gentle pressure, the greater will be our freedom. Too long have each and every one of us said, I want to be just myself. Oh, can't we think of anything better than that? How about beginning to be with the help of God's actual graces a veritable child of God? God love you. You have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.